We'll turn again this evening to the third epistle of John and read the epistle once again. The elder unto the well-beloved Gaius, whom I love in the truth, beloved, I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health, even as thy soul prospereth. For I rejoiced greatly when the brethren came and testified of the truth that is in thee, even as thou walkest in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Beloved, thou doest faithfully whatsoever thou doest to the brethren and to strangers which have borne witness of thy charity before the church, whom if thou bring forward on their journey after a godly sort, thou shalt do well, because that for his name's sake they went forth, taking nothing of the Gentiles. We therefore ought to receive such that we might be fellow helpers to the truth. I wrote unto the church, but Diotrephes, who loveth to have the preeminence among them, receiveth us not. Wherefore, if I come, I will remember his deeds which he doeth, prating against us with malicious words, and not content therewith, neither doth he himself receive the brethren, and forbiddeth them that would, and casteth them out of the church. Beloved, follow not that which is evil, but that which is good. He that doeth good is of God, but he that doeth evil hath not seen God. Demetrius hath good report of all men and of the truth itself, yea, and we also bear record, and ye know that our record is true. I had many things to write, but I will not with ink and pen write unto thee, but I trust I shall shortly see thee, and we shall speak face to face. Peace be to thee, our friends salute thee, greet the friends by name. This far God's inspired word, we consider verses 5 through 8. Beloved, thou doest faithfully whatsoever thou doest to the brethren and to strangers, which have borne witness of thy charity before the church, whom if thou bring forward on their journey after a godly sort, thou shalt do well, because that for his name's sake they went forth, taking nothing of the Gentiles. We therefore ought to receive such that we might be fellow helpers to the truth. Beloved saints of Jesus Christ, this evening we notice again Gaius as an example. Gaius as an example of one whose relationship to truth is a positive relationship. He walked in truth and he is fellow helper to truth. We also see something else that John does, which we noticed this morning. Verse 3 was specific. Verse 4 became general. It set forth a general principle. Likewise, in our text, verses 5 through 7 speak to Gaius and about Gaius. And then the apostle steps back and makes a, a general application to the whole church. We ought to be like that. We, therefore, ought to receive such that we might be fellow helpers to the truth. So the questions that will confront us this evening are not only that which confronted us this morning, are you walking in truth, 
but also, are you a fellow helper to truth? This also is why the apostle commends Gaius. I call your attention to the text under that theme. Gaius, fellow helper to the truth. Let's notice first the meaning, second the example, and third the commendation. If you took out a number of English versions, translations of the Bible, and looked how they translate, especially that last phrase in verse 8, that we might be fellow helpers to the truth, and then if you also would consult a number of commentaries, you would find at least two different approaches to the text. Not radically different, but two different ways of translating and understanding the phrase. Either of them is grammatically possible in light of the Greek text. On the one hand, some would say we are fellow helpers of truth. Truth is this thing that works. Truth works, and you and I are to help truth do its work. Now, you and I might first scratch our head and say, we have to help truth? What does that mean? And that's a fair question. What does that mean? It, but the point I'm making is, that's one way of translating the text. Truth is the thing that works, and we are to help it. But the other approach to the, uh, understanding the text is not to say that it's truth that works, but that there are other men who work in the interest or for the advantage of truth, and we are to help those other men. Their work regards truth. We support them in their labor. It is that latter approach that I'll take this evening and demonstrate from the context and the text that this can be, indeed, the meaning of the text. Truth, therefore, in our text refers not just to the objective revelation of God, unchanging, as it has as its heart and center the triune God and the revelation of that God in Jesus Christ, who is God in the flesh, and also, as we saw this morning, that this truth is an antithetical reality, and it's a sphere in which we walk, but there's development of the concept truth in our text beyond what the apostle has taught us before, and that is that truth refers to the preaching of the gospel. Now, the preaching of the gospel is the opening up of the scriptures of God the revelation of God. It is centering in Jesus Christ, whom you would see and I must bring to you in every sermon. It does remind us of the need to live antithetically. But the point is, fellow helpers to the truth or with regard to truth are those who help and support the preacher of the gospel. There in a nutshell is what this phrase means. And the preacher of the gospel, if from the viewpoint of this text, is not just your pastor. But he is the one who goes forth preaching the gospel outside of the church to others who have not heard. It's the work of missions to which the text refers. 
And now let me demonstrate that that's the idea here. In the first place, it's clear from the fact that the apostle is speaking of what Gaius did to people who, verse 7, for his name's sake went forth, taking nothing of the Gentiles. Gaius did something to men who preached the gospel among the Gentiles. He did something, we'll not say just what it was at the moment, but he did something with regard to those who had gone to proclaim the name of Jesus Christ, and not just among the circle where Jesus Christ had already been known and confessed, but among those who were heathen, among those who did not yet know him. So that, in the first place, demonstrates that a fellow helper to the truth refers to one who helps the missionary as he proclaims truth to the Gentiles. In the second place, the word fellow helper is found a number of times in the New Testament. And in almost every instance, it refers to the sort of thing I'm making it refer to here in this text. It refers not to the preacher or the missionary himself, but to the one who supports and assists the preacher and the missionary. You can think, for instance, of Romans 16. The word occurs three times in that chapter. Romans 16, verse 3, greet Priscilla and Aquila, my helpers in Christ Jesus. Now, it's true that Aquila had been one who proclaimed the gospel too, but he's presented here in this text as Paul's helper. Salute, this is now verse 9, salute Urbane, our helper in Christ, another one who assisted Paul in the gospel ministry. And verse 21, Timotheus, my work fellow. So the apostle, at least three times in that chapter, the apostle being the one who proclaims the gospel, is referring to others who have supported and assisted him in the proclamation of it. I come again to another passage in which the word is used, 1 Corinthians 3, verse 9. For we are laborers together with God. That's a strong statement, isn't it? Now, it's not Paul who says there are people who assisted me, Paul, the missionary, but as apostles, we are laborers together with God. The point is, it's the same word he used, and it makes a distinction between God and the ones who labor on behalf of God and God's cause. The point of our text in referring to fellow helpers to truth is that it's speaking of those who support the ministry of the gospel and more specifically, the work of missions. Now there's still something astounding about the way the Holy Spirit speaks here. Even though it isn't truth that we need to help, even though it's those who work in the interest of truth, stop and think of the power of the gospel as God reveals it. Stop and think of the power of Jesus Christ who himself declares the gospel and makes known the gospel. And you ask the question, when you think of this power, why does it need help? The power of the preaching of the gospel is the power to soften a hardened heart. 
It's the power to bring an unbeliever to faith. It's the power to turn an impenitent one to God in penitence. Then, if we've already been brought to saving faith and brought to penitence in Jesus Christ, that doesn't mean the preaching of the gospel now is irrelevant and unnecessary. The power of the preaching of the gospel to the believer, the godly believer, is to build up, to give us the power to persevere in our faith and in godliness. The power of the preaching of the gospel in a congregation is that it knits the people of the congregation together in love and in unity. It exposes whatever there might be in our congregation that hinders that unity, sin in ourselves, for instance, and it reminds us that there's power in Jesus Christ to fight against that sin and turn from it. All of what I'm saying is this, the preaching of the gospel has an inherent power. And there's one power I haven't even mentioned yet. And that's the power that you see also on the mission field, the power to harden. Now, who's the one who directs the preaching of the gospel as it carries out these works? Who is that one but Jesus Christ, our exalted Lord, our chief prophet, who himself through preaching declares to his people what he would have us know. And you stop and say, there's something amazing going on in this text. That this work of declaring the gospel, which Jesus Christ himself could do all alone from heaven, if he would, but speak his own voice, which he could also do through the agency and ministry of angels if he would send them to us and make them visible to us. He does through the ministry of mere men. You've been struck with that before? And the ordination form for pastors, that point is made that God is pleased to use mere men in the ministry of the gospel. What kind of men? Well, here's the fundamental characteristic about those men. Sinners, just like the people to whom the gospel is preached. Sinners with their own inherent and besetting weaknesses, weaknesses of nature, weaknesses of personality. Oh, strengths too. But that's not the point I'm making at the moment. Clay pots, Paul calls them in 2 Corinthians 4, earthen vessels. The almighty, powerful Jesus Christ would declare his gospel through men who are really no different from you in any respect except God gave them particular gifts to be exercised in a particular office in the church. Isn't that amazing, striking? You say, why? And part of the answer to the question, why, is that these men, if they have prepared themselves rightly to bring a sermon, have seen their own unworthiness to receive the word that they're bringing, these men, therefore, speak to you out of the conviction of our own hearts. 
what we know to be true. And the Holy Spirit works through that and uses that to build up the church in her faith. And then there's something else amazing here, and that is that the preacher of the gospel doesn't exist merely for the sake of the church, but the church for the cause of preaching. I didn't say the church for the sake of just that man who fills the pulpit, as if he's the center and he's the head and he's the focal point, but the church exists to support the cause of preaching. And that's getting again at the phrase of a fellow helper to the truth. You and I have been given a place in the body of Jesus Christ. Each of us has a unique place. We have different gifts, but one thing we have in common, inasmuch as we're part of the body, we all are vitally interested in the propagation of the truth that unites us and that holds us together. We all are vitally interested in the proclamation of that truth from the pulpit, but we are all vitally interested in the spreading of that truth to others who haven't heard. And in that way, we, share, we, we become fellow helpers to the truth. Now the question is, how was that true for Gaius? The apostle says that he is a fellow helper to the truth. And that's true in a general way and then in a couple of specific ways. Generally in verse 5 we read, Thou doest faithfully whatsoever thou doest to the brethren and to strangers. Actually, the apostle is speaking of two categories of people here. The brethren who for his namesake went forth. The traveling missionaries. And at the same time, Gaius does something to strangers. I'm going to leave that thought, that what he does to strangers for the moment. But whatsoever thou doest, Gaius had a concern for the welfare of those men who preached the gospel. Because he loved the gospel, he took care of them. Now let's see specifically how that works out. In the first place, we read in verse 8, he received them. That is, the apostle expands and says, that's what you and I must do. We ought to receive such, like Gaius did. He received them. They were not in their home city. They had left their home city. They were in an area that they weren't familiar with. They were preaching the gospel to people whom they had not known. And this Gaius said to them, you come to my house. You go forth and preach the gospel. I'm not asking you just to preach to me and no one else. You go preach the gospel promiscuously. That is, to all who will hear. But at the end of the day, you come back to my house. I have a bed for you. And I have food for you. He received them. There's a principle going on here about missions. You took a collection this morning for the support of your pastor. He labors on your behalf and you support him. But when we send out a missionary into some other area of the country or of the world, that missionary doesn't say to the people to whom he preaches, first of all, very first time we've met together, now I want your money. 
that's what a hireling does. That's what a wolf does. That's not what a shepherd does. And therefore, because the pastor, that is the missionary, doesn't say to the people among whom he labors, I need your money to live, he is sent forth by a church that says, not only will we pay our pastor's needs, but we will pay your needs also. You go preach out there for us. This is part of the calling we have as a church of Jesus Christ, and we will support you. Gaius is illustrating that as he says to those men who go forth to preach the gospel, you come to my house, I will feed you, and I will give you a bed. And then not only does he receive them, verse 8, but verse 6 refers to his sending or bringing them forward on their journey after a godly sort. And the same point is being made here that when they say now to Gaius, thank you for housing us, you've housed us well, you've fed us while we've been in this area, it's time for us to move on to another area to preach. Gaius says, you won't go empty-handed. I noticed when you came in that your feet were all blistered. Here's some salve for your feet. I noticed that your sandals were worn out. Here's a new pair of sandals. Go with my blessing, and may the Lord care for your needs. But Gaius didn't just say, I hope somewhere, somehow, your needs are met. He did what was in his power to care for them. And in that way, he was a fellow helper to the truth. It must be he was a man of some means, although the Bible doesn't say that in as many words. And I wouldn't leave the impression that only the more wealthy among us really have the privilege or the ability to care for those who preach the gospel and do the work of missions. It is the calling of the church of Jesus Christ and every member of the congregation to do what is in their power to support the work of missions. That's Gaius, fellow helper to truth. Now our text tells us what there was about Gaius that motivated him to do this. And it's an important point that we have to notice too. Should we lack ourselves this virtue of which the text speaks, we might well find ourselves unwilling to be a fellow helper to the truth. Not so much unable, but unwilling. What was there about Gaius that made his willing? The answer is his charity, verse 6, which have borne witness of thy charity before the church. In your receiving the brothers, in your sending them forth after a godly sort, you showed love, charity, really love as it's shown toward the neighbor, and therefore the keeping of the entire second, command, uh, second table of the law is a matter of showing charity. Now what is there about a man that gives him charity and makes him exercise this charity? First of all, it's love for truth. He understood, as do you and I, we ought to, 
that this gospel that we proclaim is the good news of salvation. There is no news better than this. It'd be nice, we might think, if we can hear news tomorrow that the wars in Ukraine and Russia and in Israel and Gaza are over. There's going to be some earthly peace. But if that's the news that you hear tomorrow, good news from an earthly viewpoint, it doesn't still rival the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is that on the basis of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross and in his resurrection, you and I who were not at peace with God, whose sins had separated us from God, are now restored to fellowship with him. The good news of the gospel is that he draws us then into covenant fellowship with himself and he will preserve us in that covenant fellowship and even prepare us for a greater enjoyment of that covenant fellowship in heaven. This is the gospel. Now when you think of what that gospel has done for you, two things. Don't you love it? And number two, don't you want others to hear it too? So this love, this charity, this love for truth, which is really a love for God, a love for Christ, and a love for God's word, motivates Gaius to say, I have not been called to preach the gospel. I have not been sent forth for his name's sake, but I care about the word. And I will do whatever I can to support those who engage in it. And in this, he sets an example for us. That's verse 8. We, therefore, ought to receive such that we might be fellow helpers to the truth. The we now is every Christian. And therefore the we is the Church of Jesus Christ from the viewpoint of her being a denomination such as the PRCA, but also from the viewpoint of her being a congregation such as Cornerstone Protestant Reformed Church. The calling comes to us to support both the work of the ministry of the gospel and the work of missions. In order to underscore that calling and Put it before you, I ask you, do you really understand the necessity of missions? What I'm going to say in the comments I make now are not intended in the least to reflect negatively on this congregation. I don't know you. I don't know you well enough to point out in love specific faults. I'm not trying to do that. But I'm going to make a general observation that it has historically been a Dutch trait that missions is something we do as a luxury. And that may be the way we think. If we think that way, 
we would say to ourselves, we have a number of vacancies. Good thing we don't have missionaries in the Philippines anymore. Good thing they came back. We have pulpits that needed filling. But if we understand the necessity of missions, we're going to say something different. We're going to say, what has the Lord done to us? Has he closed for us an opportunity to proclaim the gospel to Gentiles and they weren't all Gentiles in the Philippines, don't get me wrong, but to others in other contexts and cultures who need to hear the gospel? Is the Lord, in withholding from us, at least not giving us as many men as we need for the pulpits, but also not giving us a foreign field of labor, is the Lord in some way chastising or judging us? Do you see the necessity of missions and then this question too we have to face if we are going to receive such follow the example of Gaius do you have a zeal for that work we might understand the necessity in our head that might be an intellectual understanding of the need but a disinterest in it is that true of us or are we as a congregation and we as families and individuals also fellow helpers to truth? In our day and age, it seems to be a little easier to be a fellow helper to truth in the sense in which the text speaks of it. We took the collection for the general fund. Some of that collection will go also to the missionaries of the congregation so it's as simple as giving money. We might think that, but it mustn't just be that simple. It is true that we don't have our missionaries coming around and saying, I don't have a place to stay tonight, so that we say, well, I'll open up my home to you. But do we pray for them? Do we read the reports they send back about the work they're doing in a different field? Do we notice some need they might have and say as a congregation through a diaconate, through an evangelism committee, hey, let's see what we can do to meet that need. Let's send them this or that which will help them in their work. And that way we show even our own context and culture that we are fellow helpers to the truth. And then... Are they held up in our prayers? Our prayers at the evening dinner table. Our personal prayers in our private and personal devotions. Do we remember the cause of mission and the missionaries we send forth and at the moment the fact that there is not a current foreign mission field in which to labor? Do we pray that the Lord would give us one. Underscoring that being a fellow helper to the truth isn't an option, but is in fact a calling that God lays on his church is one word in verse 8. We therefore ought. And the word ought doesn't just mean here's a suggestion, here's a reminder, here's something that would be good for you or for me to do. 
The word ought means we owe this. Why do we owe it? It comes back again to what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, having redeemed us body and soul. Why do we owe anything? Why is there an ought or a must of the law and especially of the calling to love God and to love the neighbor in all of Scripture? It is because he who loves us, we who hated, we who by nature only could hate, he who loved and loves us reforms and fashions our hearts so that now we love, we show ourselves to be like him. This is our calling. Think of Romans 13, verse 8. Owe no man anything but to love one another, for he that loveth one another hath fulfilled the law. This is what God says we owe him to all eternity, to love him who first loved us. When you and I think of an owing, an ought, a debt, we think to ourselves of, a debt that has a very material component to it, something we can pay off in installments. There will be a point at which it's all paid off. That's not true here. This is an ongoing calling, an unending obligation, because this debt is not the sort of thing we're paying off to God and will ever burn the mortgage of. This debt is the debt of gratitude a life of service to him that is unending now and will be to all eternity. We, therefore, ought to receive such. Now, whenever God sets before us what is an ought or a must, he doesn't just say, the end of the story, this is what you must. But he goes on to remind us that what we must do, we can do. And what we must and can do, he works in us to desire to do. Let's see that that's true here too. Do you remember then that you, by nature, in Adam, having transgressed, could not, nor could I, love the truth as it was proclaimed, that we and our forefathers in our generations, whichever one was the first to hear the gospel and believe the gospel, could not in his or her own power say, all right, that's what I've been missing, that's what I've been looking for all these years, but by nature you and I and our forefathers would say to this truth, no. By nature, we would take the missionaries and we would kill them, butcher them, eat them. Many missionaries have died that way. That's our nature. And therefore, when God sets forth for us what we ought, he says to us, now remember that I have brought you into my kingdom and covenant and church. This was the very means, the declaration of the gospel, by which you came to know me as your father in Jesus Christ. And therefore, as your father in Jesus Christ, working my life in you, you can do 
what you ought, what God commands us to do, he gives us the power to do. And with the power, the incentive and the desire. And that boils down to one word, really. Thankfulness. Gratitude. A standing amazed at God for what he did for us in Christ and saying, he loves me that much. This ought is not a burden. This ought is not a suggestion. God give me the power and the desire to do what shows my love for him. And then we're able to follow the example of Gaius. Now, having set forth the main thought of the text, that phrase being fellow helpers to the truth, what it meant, how it was true for Gaius, and how he sets an example for us, let's see that in this text, the apostle is commending Gaius for what Gaius has done. The brethren, as we saw this morning, have come back. Wherever they were, out at Gaius's region of the woods, and going to other places, they've come back to John, and they've told John the story of their mission labors, and they have some things to say about Gaius. And in response to hearing these things, John says to Gaius, four things you have done well. In the first place, you took in both brethren and strangers. There's a grammatical way in which the Greek language conveys when it speaks of two groups of people, brother and stranger, whether it's really one group being restated. You took in these brothers and you didn't know about them. You, uh, you didn't know them. They were strangers, but you knew they preached the gospel, so you took them in. Whether it's one group being restated or whether it's two distinct groups. On the one hand, you did this to brothers, and on the other hand, you did it to strangers. And it's the latter that's the case here. In other words, Gaius was not just the sort of one in the church who says, all right, I've got the minister at my house today. You didn't get him, I got him. There's, you see, there could be sort of a, a striving there can be sort of a, a badge of honor when it's the minister you're having over or the missionary. But what about the stranger? Gaius' charity was not reserved just for those who were proclaiming the gospel of Christ, but he would let strangers in his house too. I know, I know, and I'm not meaning to get into it at great length here in this sermon, that there are people who are strangers to you and to me, whom if we've invited to our house, we might have some danger on our hands. Nonetheless, be not forgetful to entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. John is commending Gaius for this. You did not just do that which was a badge of honor, but you did what you might have been a little uncomfortable in doing. Had people 
over you had never met before. Well, instead of applying it in terms of you going out and on your way home tonight asking some total stranger to come over to your house, we can apply it to one who came to your church worship service. And therefore, though you don't know him or her, he or she is a stranger, yet you notice that you were in the same building together, worshiping the same God together. Whether he or she is a genuine Christian or not, you don't know, but you're going to find out and you're going to show him or her the love of God in Jesus Christ. There's a risk involved. You'll pray to God. God, keep me safe, but I will show this one thy love. That, first of all, is the commendation, what he did also to strangers. In the second place, the apostle says in verse 5, it is a faithful thing or as the King James translates it, thou doest faithfully. And the point here is that in your care for the missionaries and in your care for strangers, you demonstrated a genuine and living and sincere faith in your heart. Are we not to live by faith? This, I say, is how Gaius showed very concretely that he was walking in truth. Truth formed his whole life. It showed itself in many ways that he was walking in truth, as we saw this morning. But here's one. He lived out of faith. And therefore, he kept and obeyed the law of God. In the third place, as the apostle commends him, he says in verse 6, whom if thou bring forward on their journey after a godly sort, thou shalt do well after a godly sort, Gaius treats them the way God treats his children. That's the point. He is acting in a God-like way. And having done that, thou shalt do well. Now, the apostle speaks in verse 6 as if Gaius hasn't sent them forth yet. He's saying to Gaius, you've done this for them so far, you've received them. Someday, when you send them forth, be sure to do it in a godly sort. But in fact, the story is Gaius has been doing this again and again and again. There are probably some in his house right now whom he must yet send forth. But he sent forth others before. And that's the fourth point I want to bring out about the commendation of the apostle here. This is a repeated activity on Gaius's part. They tell John he did this to us, not once, not twice. This is the kind of man he is. He is a hospitable Christian who manifests that he doesn't seek himself with his own, but he uses his possessions for the welfare of other saints and in the service of the gospel ministry, though he himself is not a pastor. The apostle commends him. And now as I apply this part, as I apply this part of the text to us, I recognize I'm leaving a bit the main thought of the text. But just like this morning, there was some instruction regarding how do we communicate about each other? And when do we turn around and say to somebody, you know what I just heard about you? There's something of that going on here too. 
there's instruction in our text about godly commendation one of another. When I say commendation, I do not mean compliment. I'm not talking about saying how nice the car is, how nice your new uh, house is, how nice you look today, and how good the food was that you served. Those are compliments. They certainly have their place. But I'm talking about commendation. I'm talking about encouragement. I'm talking about noticing that a brother or a sister did something, served in the church of Jesus Christ, and I notice, and I'm going to tell that brother or sister, I see that you used your God-given gifts and talents for the well-being of the church of Jesus Christ, and I praise God for that. That is commendation. Commendation, then, is a matter of letting them know that not only did we recognize and notice that what they did was of service to the church of God in Christ, but that the church benefited from that service. And the goal of commendation is encouragement. Sometimes the goal of compliments then we'd call it not a compliment, but flattery, is to give you a better view of me. That's not what's going on here. The goal of commendation is encouragement. You know why Gaius needed this encouragement? What Gaius was doing that Diotrephes not only would not do, but said, you may do that and be a member of my church. Not content therewith, prating against us with malicious words, neither doth he himself receive the brethren. What Gaius did, Diotrephes would not. And forbiddeth them that would, and casteth them out of the church. Can you imagine? Not just being a member of a congregation now in which there isn't a zeal for missions, but in which you get excommunicated if you have such a zeal. This is what Diotrephes was doing. And he's the influential man in the church. Gaius needed somebody to say to him, I noticed what you did. Brother, you did it in love for God. Well done. And so sometimes, as you and I serve in the body of Jesus Christ, we often find somebody else perched on our shoulder, an invisible devil, whispering in our ears, you're nothing. What do you think you are? Not promoting in us the genuine and the proper theology that before God, apart from God, I am nothing, but God has made me to be something and someone, but saying to us, the church doesn't need you. Look at all these other people in the church. Look at the positions some of them have. He doesn't need you. That's what the devil would have us think. Now the Lord sends a brother or a sister, and that brother or sister says to us, I see how you served in the body 
well done. We need that commendation. And let the fruit and the effect of it be that we praise and thank God. Now John's commendation of Gaius, I have to end the way I ended this morning. John's commendation of Gaius is really John speaking on behalf of Jesus Christ who sent him. And therefore, you and I here in this text are seeing that our Lord Jesus Christ also notices the service we render to others in the body of Christ and says to us, well done, thou good and faithful servant. The 25th chapter of Matthew, as it describes the final judgment, it puts those words in the mouth of Jesus Christ. In the last days, the saints say to him, we're unworthy. We understand the doctrines of grace. We understand total depravity. We didn't do anything to help. But Christ says, well done, thou good and faithful servant. When? When did we see you hungry, Jesus Christ, and we fed you? When did we see you thirsty and gave you water? When were you naked and we clothed you in as much as ye have done it to one of the least of these, my brethren, ye have done it unto me. This is the commendation that we hear from Jesus Christ. We'll hear in the last day, but we hear it already now in the preaching of the gospel. And the commendation certainly doesn't leave us with a big head. We have done well. We have earned. He noticed us. You know what he noticed, don't you? It wasn't you. It wasn't me. It was his life in you and me manifesting itself. But because we have Satan in the form of a devil perched on our shoulder saying to you and me, what you did for that brother or sister quietly unknown to most, that can't possibly help the body. Jesus Christ isn't going to be concerned with trifles like that. And our Lord and Savior says, see it all. I know what you did. Well done. And faith responds with gratitude and praise. At that point we don't say to Jesus Christ, no, you're you're exaggerating what I did. At that point, we don't say to Jesus Christ, but I see how sin cleaved to my best works, although we do see how that happens. At that point, we say, our Lord and Savior, who died for us and who lives in us, is now assuring me again that I belong to him, that his love for me is an unending love, and that therefore, working in me the grace to live unto him and to do what I ought and to desire to do what I ought. When I hear that, I'm motivated to even greater service. May that be the effect that this text and this sermon has on you also. 
that we'd be ready to use our gifts in the service of the church, yes, with a view to the foreign work of missions, the work of foreign missions. I hear our Lord and Savior say, I saw my life in you. Amen. Our Father, which art in heaven, because we are unworthy of this commendation, because even our best works are polluted with sin, our prayer is sanctify and purify. See not the sin that is in us, but see what we do out of the power of the new man in Jesus Christ. And we hear our Lord and Savior commend us, and we say, it is all of thee. For Jesus' sake, amen.